Amen. Well, thank you so much, worship team, for pointing us to Christ this morning. It's been a good day already, and I appreciate, I always love just listening to you all sing. It's the greatest. Um, I remind you often that there's nowhere else that I go in my world regularly where I hear grown-ups sing out loud in a public setting like this. So it's a unique thing that we do when we come here for corporate worship, and I am very, very grateful for our team that leads us so well each and every week. We are in the Gospel of Luke this morning, Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be looking at verses, our chapter 4, verses 14, down through verse 30, Luke 4, 14 through 30. If you're new here to the Sunrise family, we go through books of the Bible. So each and every week, we just take the next section of Scripture. That's our typical pattern. We'll break here and there for special occasions, but that's our typical pattern. And so our study of the Gospel of Luke has brought us up through verse 13, and so now we're going to pick up in 14. I know that many of us probably live away from what we would consider our hometown now, And going home is always a little bit of an interesting experience, isn't it? When you go back home, there's a certain sense of familiarity with certain things. A lot stays the same, but a lot of things change as well. There's new stores that pop up. Has anybody else had the experience where everything seems so much smaller than it did when you were a kid? The little hill that you remember running up just seemed like a mountain at the time, and you go back and it's a bump. It's like, what happened to the hill? It's like, well, your perspective happened. That's probably what happened. Definitely the most interesting part, though, of going back to your hometown is being around the people that you grew up with. And we have a tendency to lock people into the age that we met them at. You guys ever notice that? And you'll get a notice or you'll hear that your nephew is getting married and having a baby. You're like, but they're nine. That can't work yet. It's like, well, no, actually it's been... 15 years, and it's quite possible that they're a grown-up now. We have a tendency to lock people into a particular status, and we don't give them credit always for growing, for changing, and maybe even developing some particular expertise in a different field. You'll just always be the kid that grew up and was causing trouble in church or school or whatnot. As the old saying in business goes, An expert is somebody who is more than 50 miles from home, has no responsibility for implementing the advice that he gives, and he shows a lot of slides. That's an expert. We don't always consider the one who is here amongst us in our hometowns. And it's so interesting as we come into this story here today about the life and ministry of Jesus, what we see is that Jesus is in his hometown And there's apparently been some ministry that's already taken place. We get hints of this, although Luke is not explicit with it, and we can put this together with the other gospel accounts. And we know that Jesus had begun his ministry, and he goes to Nazareth, his hometown. Now, a little bit about Nazareth. It's a small town. Some of you grew up in small towns. And it's a really small town of about 400 people or so. So, sleepy little town of Nazareth. And he goes back and he absolutely blows their minds with his first sermon here in Nazareth. We'll talk as we work our way through the Gospel of Luke, we'll talk a lot about what we'll call the Messianic ministry, meaning the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah, also the Christ. When you see the word Christ, it means Messiah. And it comes from the same root as anointed one, the chosen one. 
And it's interesting to me how many movies and books and stories draw off of this chosen one idea. In fact, you can think of pretty much any of the dystopian types of works or the superhero types of works. They all are based on this idea of the one who would bring balance, the one who would bring salvation, the one who brings the warring parties together, this idea. And it's really a copy in some sense of the biblical story. And so the Old Testament, your first two-thirds of your Bible, is really pointed towards this one that's going to come. We're told very, very early on, so the first page of Genesis, second page really, probably in most of your Bibles, we're told that there's going to be one who's going to come, the deliverer that's going to come. And this promise gets developed year over year and after covenant after covenant until eventually we look and we see that there's going to be one that's going to come from the line of David and he's going to be a shepherd like Moses and like Abraham. And so we see that this one is going to come and the Old Testament is anticipating this. So if you were a part of our equipping hour study this morning, Malachi ends out the story of the Old Testament and it ends waiting on volume two. It ends in anticipation, sort of like a Marvel movie. It ends with a, there has to be something else. There's a teaser, there has to be something else coming. And so that's what the New Testament is. It's the coming of the Messiah. They look forward to this for a thousand years or more. But then another term that we'll use throughout our study of the Gospel of Luke is this term that I'll use called messianic expectations. Meaning they were waiting on the Messiah, the anointed one to come, but they wanted him to come in a particular way and do particular things. In particular, they wanted him to clean Israel out from the Romans. They had this strange system of government. Israel's in their land, which is a big deal if you know a little bit about the Old Testament. You know, there's this this real estate that's promised to Israel and they get exiled from the land for their disobedience and they come back and there's this back and forth relationship with the land. So they're, they're in the right place and they have some of the system set up over them, but they also have these overlords, the Romans, who are controlling. And so they're not quite in charge of their land and they don't like it, but they've worked out this sort of two-system government thing in the first century. And so then the natural expectation, the messianic expectation, is that the Messiah is going to come, kick the Romans out, and make Israel great again. This is what we're supposed to be. Well, Jesus comes, and he doesn't exactly do what they think he should be doing. And they let him know about it. And this causes, this is a tension point. And so what we see in this first interaction recorded for us in Luke, this interaction in Nazareth, it really is sort of programmatic or a paradigm, if you will, by which we can read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, this, this conflict between the Messiah they have and the Messiah they expected. This is the conflict. This Messiah, he's concerned about the marginalized in society. He even seems to prefer them in the Gospels. He carefully includes both the Jew and the Gentile. We'll see that in our story today as well. He ultimately conquers, but he doesn't conquer in a top-down sort of way. He conquers in a subversive sort of way, the bottom up, serving the least of these, ultimately dying at the hands of his persecutors and defeating death. Many in the first century just simply didn't have a category 
for this type of Messiah. They wanted a ruler, a king. They didn't want the suffering servant like Isaiah talks about. No, we don't want that. So here we are finding Jesus in his first sermon here at Nazareth. First sermons are always an interesting thing for preachers. At some point, somebody's got to give you a shot to stand up and say something. Anybody that preaches, many of you have preached before, you probably remember that first time that you stood up in front of a group of people. And if you're like me, you probably still pray for that group of people you stood up the first time and talked to. You should pray for the people, the sweet people of Penal Baptist Church in Antioch, Alabama. Closest real city is Jackson, Alabama, which none of you have ever heard of either. Closest city to that is Mobile, Alabama, so about an hour 15 or so. And I believe, if I have my dates right, I believe it was somewhere in 1998 when I stood up the first time and preached. John 3, 1 through 15, and I quoted Whitfield a lot. You must be born again in that sermon. The first sermons are always interesting, and certainly for Jesus, this first one, at least here at Nazareth, as I said, it's likely he had done some ministry elsewhere, but back in Nazareth, and it's an amazing reaction that he gets. So let's see it. We'll give you three simple words to break this message down. The ministry of Jesus, it amazes, confronts, and it angers. As my outline, I started to use the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you prefer that, it fits, actually, as well. The good, the bad, the ugly. Amazes, confronts, angers. Let's read our story of Jesus' first sermon in Nazareth, and then we'll talk a little bit more about Nazareth and the heart of his message. Verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed. But only Naaman, the Syrian, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. 
but passing through their midst, he went away. What a ride for your first experience in your hometown. They're amazed at him. They're in awe of the gracious words that are coming out of his mouth, and their story ends with, they're trying to murder him after his first sermon here in Nazareth. Amazing. A few things here that I want you to notice. In verse 14, it says he returned, and this is coming off the heels of the temptation event, so you might remember that. We have the baptism of John, and the Spirit of God comes down upon Jesus, empowering him for this messianic ministry. Then we have his, so we have the Spirit credentialing him, if you want to view it in those terms in that way. Then we have the genealogy that comes after that to show that Jesus is the legitimate heir. He's the legitimate Messiah. Then we have the testing to show that he's not like Adam. He's not like Israel. He's the new human, the ultimate human. He's the Messiah. And now we get this messianic ministry. And it's through the power of the Spirit Luke has already told us that he was conceived by the power of the Spirit in chapter 1. He was anointed by the Spirit, we see in chapter 3. And now he's led by the Spirit in chapter 4 to be tempted. And now, through the power of the Spirit, he is going to proclaim the gospel, the good news to these people here in Nazareth. This is an accent throughout the Luke's narrative of the life of Christ. He goes to Nazareth, and it says that he had been ministering in Galilee, Now, just a map here to show you where we're talking about. Uh, Hopefully, you can see enough of that. Let's see what we can do here. All right, Galilee is there. All right, that was beautiful, huh? Yeah, typical my artwork. Uh, Galilee is right there. And what we see is Nazareth is this town right here. And they reference later Capernaum, so keep that in mind. Capernaum was a largely Gentile area in there in Galilee. Here's a closer view of that, just zooming in a little bit more. So he had been in Capernaum, and now he's in Nazareth, the town there with the red letters. So it's in the northern part of Israel, which is where Jesus spends much of his time, as we'll see as we walk throughout the Gospel of Luke. So that's where we are. Jesus was part of this community, and it says here in verse 16, he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, where he had been brought up. Now, Jesus, at this point, is somewhere around 30 years old-ish, somewhere in that neighborhood. So for him to stand up and read the scripture was not necessarily that uncommon. The men of the synagogue would have done that. He goes to the synagogue. A synagogue wasn't exactly a church, but probably closest relationship we would have. It's the place where they would gather to read the scriptures. They would have teaching, exposition of the Old Testament, as we would call it, the Hebrew scriptures. They would pray. They would have community. So this was not, again, it's not exactly the New Testament church, but it's where they would gather, and the most similar thing we would have would be the church. And so Jesus gets up to read. The scripture reader would stand to read This is interesting to me. You would stand to read, and then you would sit to do an exposition of that. So we would stand up, read the scripture, and you sit, and he would sit in front of everyone, which kind of stylistically is pretty interesting, isn't it? Because we kind of do the opposite of that. Um, And if I just walked up here and pulled up a stool and said, let's have a chat, y'all, some of y'all are like, that's a little too casual for me. But, you know, stylistic, that's what they did uh, back in the day. 
So Jesus, he's given the scroll by the attendant. The scrolls probably look something like this. Uh, these big scrolls. Each synagogue would not necessarily have an entire copy of the Old Testament, as we would call it, the Hebrew Scriptures. And he, but they, they had a scroll of Isaiah, and we found many of these now, uh, many of these scrolls, then in the, just continues to confirm the reliability of Scripture. And many of Isaiah's scrolls, in particular, we found. And so he finds this section, and he finds this section here in Isaiah 61. So he's given this scroll, he finds Isaiah 61, and it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, this is verse 18, because he has anointed me, same word as Messiah, to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, all of them are looking, fixed on him, and then he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, the fact that he read this scripture is not necessarily profound. The fact that he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, that is what caught everyone's attention. What did he read? Isaiah 61, and there's also a quotation from Isaiah 58, verse 6. In essence, he's saying the year of the Lord is here. It's your year. It's here. It's time. Probably hinting off of the idea of the year of Jubilee, which was taught in the Old Testament, which was every 50th year there was a release of debts and a return of property and just a massive, supposed to be, a massive celebration in Israel. There's questions as to whether that was actually ever practiced by Israel, but it was supposed to be instructions and it was good news to the poor the poor this refers most likely both to the poor as Jesus does spend considerable time with the poor the downcast but it also has overtones of those who are spiritually poor you remember the sermon on the mount which starts with blessed are the poor in spirit those who are spiritually bankrupt those who realize they're sick and need help the captives, liberty to the captives. We don't have any record in the gospel accounts of Jesus issuing a jailbreak and freeing all the prisons. There's no record of that, but there's plenty of people who are freed from being slaves to sin. Actual prisoners could be in view here, but it's most likely referring to those who are in some sort of bondage, maybe to the enemy as well as those uh, as he uh, cast out many demons as well. He gives sight to the blind, and of course we know that this is physical sight that he does give to the blind, stories like John 9 and other places. And he brings people's bodies, he makes them whole. He also, this is an analogy for those who are blind to spiritual things, who are then able to see. And then liberty to the oppressed. As the gospel takes root and Christian ethic begins to work its way out there in the first century, we see that it begins to turn the culture and the world upside down. It's an amazing, amazing verse he reads. And then he says, this has been fulfilled. Now, the reaction to this is so interesting to me. So he says, this is fulfilled in verse 21. Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. 
And then they said, is this not Joseph's son? Now, there's, it's just a little verse, but I'm pretty fascinated by that little verse there because it actually tells us something. We're never told, contrary to popular belief and maybe popular artwork, we don't actually know exactly what Jesus looked like, all right? So the guy with the long blonde hair and the, you know, the flowy blonde hair and the white robe, um, not necessarily what Jesus looked like. We don't know. But we know from this verse, at least we can sort of imply from this verse, there was nothing physically about Jesus where you would meet the guy and go, ah, Messiah, there he is. There was no halo. There was no glow. They, they were shocked. Isn't this Joseph's son? We've known him. How could he be the one who's applying Isaiah 61 to himself? Jesus, you can't do that. Like, really? You? We know you. You're Joseph's son. Joseph and Mary, we know them. We know your parents. My dad was a little bit of a larger-than-life figure in Mobile, Alabama. And wherever we went in Mobile, um, I, almost inevitably, somebody would say, are you a Kegel? You're Ricky's son, aren't you? Everywhere that we went. And when Mindy and I started dating, we were at a restaurant one time, somebody comes up to us and says, hey, are, you, are you one of the Kegels? Are you Ricky's son? And she, they walk away and we talk for a second and she goes, who are you people? <laughs> it was really funny. So then one time, my dad came out. I used to work for the Shepherds Conference out at Grace Community Church. My dad came out to go to the Shepherds Conference and he's wearing his name tag that said Kegel. And people kept asking him, are you Alan's dad? I'm like, this feels good. <laughs> Payback. They know who Jesus is. They know who he is. You, you can't be the Messiah because you're too normal. There, there's nothing significant and special. How is this? Jesus continues on. He confronts next. He amazes and then Jesus confronts. Now something really interesting happens here. Jesus somehow, this, how these verses fit in with verse 22 is a little bit of a head scratcher, but I think you can see what's going on. Jesus knows that they're gonna have doubts about what is going on here. And he said to them, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now, Jesus apparently has information that's not expressly given to us here in Luke. How did he have that information? We know in other places in scripture, he knows the thoughts, he knows what's in the heart. Perhaps that's what's going on here, likely what's going on here. Perhaps there's other conversation and people are pushing back going, who do you think you are? You can't say these types of things. But he knows what they want and he decides to confront it head on. He says, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Hey, you've done some pretty awesome things in Capernaum. We've heard about the miracles. If you're the Messiah, if Isaiah 61 is really fulfilled, do a miracle, almost like a miracle on demand, a circus monkey. Do an act, make it happen. And Jesus' response is so interesting. He tells them, in essence, I'm not gonna do a miracle for you. In fact, you're just like 
your fathers. You're just like Israel. Let me give you a couple of examples. And he chooses two different examples. Elijah and then Elisha. Look at what he says. Verse 24. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. All right, so just a truism. You can't go home again, as many people say. No prophet's acceptable. They're not gonna recognize you because you're too familiar to them. Verse 25, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, what's the significance of that? The significance here is this is a Gentile area in a Gentile town. And so what he's saying is that there were a lot of widows in Israel, but the Lord, through the prophet Elijah, chose to minister in a unique and specific and memorable way to the one who wasn't an Israelite. What's Jesus saying? I'm coming here to my hometown and I'm preaching to a group of Jews, people who should embrace the Messiah, but you're not going to, just like the Old Testament said. The Israelites are gonna reject Jesus. As John 1 says, he came to his own and his own what? Received him not. His own pushed back. And so we begin to see this seed of the ministry to the Gentiles that's gonna continue to grow all throughout the Gospel of Luke. The story here is a great one. We don't have time to dive too deep into it. This widow helps Elijah by, taking, uh, by baking him bread even though she barely has enough food on her own. She says that her supply of flour is running out. Let me read a couple of verses from this text. This is in 1 Kings 17, verse 10. I guess to set that up, Elijah has confronted the king Ahab, who was a wicked king. He was married to a lovely lady named Jezebel, whose name has become synonymous with cruelty and wickedness and evil. They were a power couple there in the ancient world, a power couple for evil. Elijah confronts them, confronts Ahab, then goes on the run, and, but the, he predicts, there's, he prophesies there's gonna be a drought that's gonna come, it's gonna cause a famine. So Elijah goes on the run, he's camped out by this little stream. Well, the, because of the drought, the stream dries up. He goes seeking help, but he doesn't go to the, Jews area, the the Jewish area, he goes to the Gentile city and he finds this widow and he says this to her, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. This is 1 Kings 17, 10. Verse 11, and as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So, hey, can I get a drink? Oh, could you make me lunch? That's in essence what he's asking. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. I'm at my last drop here. We don't have anything left. There's a famine. We don't have any food. We're gonna starve to death. I've got just a little bit left. I'm just about to cook this bread for me and my son and then we're gonna die. Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. 
For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not empty until the day of the Lord sends rain upon the earth. There are obvious parallels here. There's a warning to King Ahab. There's a rejection of the warning. And then there's the prophet turning to the Gentiles to provide ministry and relief. Exactly what happens with Jesus. A warning in Israel, wholesale rejection, and then turning to the Gentiles becomes a paradigm of sorts. Elisha, a similar story. So Elijah is succeeded by Elisha, his understudy. This is a story about Naaman. He's a mighty commander in the army, but then he gets leprosy. There's a servant girl that's been taken from Israel, knows that this person who's her boss, owner in essence now, has leprosy, says, hey, there's a prophet in Israel that can help you. So Naaman sends letter, a letter to the king of Israel at the time, and he sends it with all sorts of tribute, gifts. Says, hey, I know there's somebody there that can make me whole and well. Um, here's some gifts. I want to be healed. What do I need to do? What's next steps? The king thinks it's some kind of trick. What's this guy up to? So like a spam call that you get all the time. Let me help you with your extended warranty on your vehicle. And they, he thinks it's some kind of trick. Elisha, though, catches wind of this and says, oh, I can help with this. And he sends word back, go wash in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman, in essence, says, I don't need a bath. We've got water. That's not the problem. What I need is to be cleansed of this leprosy. But one of his associates persuades him, hey, do what the prophet said. He does. The conclusion is he's healed of his leprosy. And then this, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. And he tries to give Elisha all kinds of gifts after this. Two stories that remind us of God's work amongst the Gentiles in the Old Testament. And it's just so interesting to me that that's Jesus' response to the people who want him to do a miracle here. Hey, do a trick for us. He's like, not gonna do it. In fact, he'd say later, an evil an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. I'm not operating that way. You can't force God to operate in that way. The Messiah is on his own schedule, the schedule from the Father. So the ministry of the Messiah, he amazes, he confronts, and then lastly, he angers. These people, they do not appreciate the last part of this sermon. Verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Now, before we look at that last verse, let's just consider what's happened here. They go from amazement, being in awe of his gracious words, then he confronts them and won't perform like they want him to, and they were ready to throw him off a cliff and kill him. I think any of us who preach, you've probably felt this way through the course of a sermon. Everybody's ready to give you a hug, and by the end, they're ready to throw things at you. Maybe not quite this dramatically. It's an amazing thing. They're ready to throw him off the cliff. Now watch what happens. Of course, it can't happen yet. The Messianic ministry is just starting. There's a lot that has to happen. So Jesus, <laughs> verse 30, 
But passing through their midst, he went away. He's like, no, not today. I'm out, see y'all later. And he walks back through their midst. And we're not given any more information about this. Did he put on a disguise? Did he go invisible? Did he just walk through and they were unable to grab him? We don't know. Could have been any number of things. Did he do it Star Wars style? This is not the Jesus you're looking for. And they, oh, where'd Jesus go? We don't know. Like, he's gone. We, we have no idea. But he's just gone. He just walks back through their midst. And he's gone. They were not able to do anything that wasn't part of the Father's plan. They would be allowed to put hands on him later. Wicked people would, maybe not the Nazarite people in particular here. But it wasn't time for that. It's according to God's plan. It's an amazing, amazing statement. It's interesting here as well, back-to-back stories in the Gospel of Luke. We have Jesus first tempted by Satan to throw himself off a temple so the angels would have to catch him. Now, he's, the threat is to throw him off a cliff. Now, again, if I were Jesus, I'd be like, fine, throw me. Watch this. And you call in the angels and like, yeah, what do you think about that? But Jesus, Jesus it isn't that way. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't overreach or overstep. It's an amazing, amazing reality. A few takeaways that I want to draw out for us as we draw this to a conclusion. Number one is this. Beware or be careful of faulty expectations. The Jews had ideas about what they thought and who they thought the Messiah was going to be and what he was going to do. They didn't have a category for a suffering servant. I have a fear that in our world today, many, many people have done as the, I believe it was the French philosopher Voltaire first said, God created man in his image and we have returned the favor. I think there are many people today and they have an idea and a caricature of a God that isn't actually biblical. And that scares me. And you talk to these people, we know what this is like. When I hear people say something like this, well, my God would not, or my God would, I think perhaps they've created something that they want to be true and doesn't necessarily square with scripture. You can't cherry pick one verse out of the Bible and say this is what my God is, and I'm just gonna, that's just the only one I'm gonna consider. Jesus says some really hard things. Hang out with us in Luke for a while, it's coming. He says some really hard things that are tough to hear. They're tough for us to to filter into our theology and make sure we're thinking rightly about God. Be careful, be careful. Let's honestly come to the scripture, come to the ministry and the teaching of Jesus and hear what he has to say. Be careful of faulty expectations. Number two, be cautious of initial reactions. Let me just be clear I want to say, whenever somebody says they believe in Jesus, I rejoice. I'm happy for that. Encourage faith and repentance. Encourage study of the gospel. That is awesome, great news. But we also need to know, it is possible to have an emotional reaction, and once that cloud of emotion blows away, there's nothing actually there. And I think we all know, and maybe that was our own stories. I know it was certainly true of me. As a child, you had these experiences, and then once the experience blows over, 
there's nothing really there. Emotion isn't a metric for sincerity. Lasting fruit is the true metric. Now we see in a microcosm here, we see this initial exuberance over Jesus and then they're trying to kill him at the end. So it's kind of easy to track that one, right? Sometimes it takes a long time though to see that happen. Beware, be cautious. How do you know that you're saved? You're being saved. That's the first John answer. We can know that we have walked from death into life because the power and spirit of God is continuing to work in us. And lastly, be warned of the finality of rejecting Jesus. There's a little bit of debate around this, but Jesus, there's two different stories of Jesus at Nazareth. It's possible, and he's rejected both times. It's possible that it's one story that's told from different perspectives and angles in the Gospels. So it's possible it's one story. It's possible also it's two stories. I won't try to settle that this morning. But point being, there's one, maybe two shots that they get at hearing the ministry of Jesus and accepting him as the Messiah. And then he's done with them. He walks away and he doesn't come back. He goes all over Israel, kind of traverses his way eventually down to Jerusalem for the final Passion Week. Sometimes people think, yeah, one of these days, I'll get serious about the Lord. One of these days, I'll really lock in. You don't know when that day is coming where you no longer have that opportunity. Romans 1 tells a story of people who reject and reject and reject, and finally God takes his hands off and says, you want your sin? Fine, have it. All yours, have whatever you want. And he gave them up. It says it three times in Romans 1, 24, verse 24, 26, and 28. He gave them over. He let them have it. You don't know. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Beware. Be warned of the finality of rejecting Jesus. The consequences are eternal for rejecting Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for your word. And we're thankful for the ministry of Jesus. And as we come to a passage like this, it's so human. And we could almost see the expressions on some of these people's faces as they consider what to do with this man who has just claimed, up, claimed and stood out to be the Messiah. What do we do with this guy? What do we do with his teaching? How should we understand this? Lord, I pray that we would not be guilty as we see so often in the Bible of people have certain expectations of the type of God you are, of what they want the gospel story to be, and it doesn't always match reality. So Lord, help us to be quick to put our thoughts, our views, our understanding under the microscope of scripture and to come before the text honestly and openly to learn, to submit ourselves to it. Maybe there's some in here who are listening in today and they have never believed that Jesus is the Messiah. I pray that you would help them to see today that he is who he said he was. He does fulfill the Old Testament promises of the Messiah. He is the only way of salvation. Faith and repentance in Christ is the only way to be saved. Convince them today. We pray in Christ's name, amen.